0: Welcome to the On the Economy Podcast. I'm Jared Bernstein. I'm Ben Spielberg. And you are... I'm Chai Ching Huang. Yeah, so our listeners aren't used to having a guest here in the introduction, but we are super privileged to have Chai Ching with us today.
1: Back by popular demand.
0: She's just one of those people who you listen to them and you get smarter, so let's listen to her. We're going to revisit this issue of tax reform slash tax cuts. And I know in my work in this area, when somebody says tax reform, my hackles go up and I immediately think, no, not tax reform. That doesn't look to me like what's coming down the pike. It's tax cuts and pretty tilted ones at that.
2: That's totally right. So what Republican leaders are currently calling their tax reform plans Uh, overwhelmingly costly tax cuts that flow to the very wealthy and to profitable corporations. If you take a look at their actual plans, the charts of the distribution of the cost, you have to squint really, really hard to sort of get the glimpse of reform in there. One example is the Ryan tax plan. It would spend more than three trillion dollars over the decade and 96% of the tax cuts would go to millionaires.
1: Now this is the House of Representatives tax plan. The Mm -hmm. Trump plan has got to be better, right? They say they're trying to help (laughs) all Americans.
2: The rhetoric is really attractive. The Mm. gulf between the rhetoric and what the plans actually do is rather wide. So the Trump tax plan, depending on the version that you look at, would cost between three and eight trillion dollars over 10 years. So if bigger is in your books, better, I guess you could tick that off. But again, it goes overwhelmingly to the very highest income people. And I want to make 100% clear that these cost estimates include every loophole closer, base broadening proposal that these plans have. They just happen to have very few and very vague proposals compared to their very, very clear giant tax cuts for the
0: top. I take your points. To the extent that they have pay-fors or offsets, they only cover a portion of the cuts. What about dynamic growth effects? Uh That's that's kind of a rhetorical question. (laughs) Supercharging
2: growth that will pay for a large share of these tax cuts. Research tends to back up the common sense approach, which is to look at what happened under the Bush tax cuts. Job and economic growth overall was more lackluster than it was under the Clinton tax rates which were moderately higher at the top. If you look at Kansas they tried almost this very same prescription of tax cuts tilted to the
0: top. Not only a similar prescription but actually written by many of the same supply side suspects.
2: The same internists were writing out the script Mm -hmm. and what we did not see was a gigantic shot of adrenaline into the heart of the Kansas economy which was what governor brownback promised instead growth there lagged their neighboring economies and the nation as a whole and They were left with deficits that they had to fill. They tried a few gimmicks up front, but eventually they had to go to things like delaying road repairs and closing schools early in the school year, four-day weeks.
0: Do you predict a similar kind of dynamic here if these tax cuts are loaded onto the deficit?
2: One really important threat is that they could choose to pay up front for these tax cuts by enacting at the very same time cuts to programs that assist low and moderate income people afford basic needs, so Medicaid, food assistance, housing assistance.
0: This would be a double smack of the non-wealthy because at one level you're giving a bunch of revenues to high income people and at the other level you're paying for it by cutting spending on programs and services that help everybody else.
2: Absolutely right. And back to your original question, which is, what if they don't make that clear up front by pairing their tax cuts immediately with these cuts to crucial programs? Well, you put something on the deficit to start with, and then the deficit explodes if you don't have the supercharging of growth that you were anticipating or that they were baking into their estimates And then what happens?
1: Republicans say, oh my god, the deficit, we have to cut spending.
2: Yes, and then you come back and we have a pretty clear idea of what their targets are. Their budget visions set out these deep, deep cuts to basic assistance. Health, housing, food, all the sorts of programs that we work on on a daily basis around here.
1: So I think it's safe to say that what they are trying to do, both in Congress and with the administration with their tax plans, is all bad. We try not to get too into the weeds here on this podcast, but can you talk a little bit about, for people who might be interested, what does the calendar look like in terms of this debate? What should we be watching out for and trying to stop as we think about these plans? Republican
2: leaders have signaled very clearly that their plan is to move this tax package forward using a process that allows them to do it with
0: Republican votes only. This is in the Senate, really, because Mm. in the Senate, there are enough Democrats that could, through filibuster, block it, Mm -hmm. but if they use the process you're about to describe, Mm -hmm. that barrier's not there for them.
2: Right, so there's the first stage where they try to pass a budget that sets up this partisan, fast-track process, and then the second step is writing a bill. So the first step is actually up pretty quickly. They've been signaling that they want to try and move that in the next few weeks.
0: This is exactly
2: the same process that they used in trying to repeal the Affordable Care
0: Act. But that ultimately didn't work for them.
2: They are to keep trying, I think. But again, they may try to sell this first step, this budget resolution that sets up this partisan fast track as something that is technical, that is procedural, that is nothing that you should worry about or care mm-hmm. about. But really, it could be this big first step towards this big transfer of wealth from low and moderate income people to the very wealthy. And the reason why this is so critical is that when they set up this fast track process, they have to decide what rules the tax bill has to meet in order to keep on going through the fast track. So they could require it to be revenue neutral which would mean that any tax cuts would have to be paid for by closing loopholes and scaling back tax breaks.
0: And is that something you would be less unhappy about?
2: That would be the absolute minimum standard to try to protect low and moderate income people from this outcome that we've been talking about because our nation actually needs more revenues going forward to meet needs for investment and also just to meet basic
0: demographics. Demographics, and, you know,
2: aging population, baby boomers retirement. I
0: mean these days, one might think about climate change and natural disasters to be slightly topical, if not
1: tropical. Well, that's a great lay of the land for where we are now. We've got an interview coming up where we're gonna talk a little bit about what real tax reform would look like. But 1st Chai Cheng, I understand that you have some music for us today. All right, let's outsource the music.
2: Well, I feel like I need to kick in something Kiwi and I'm gonna put Lord Does everybody know what Kiwi is? New Zealand. So, I'll give you some options. Do you want some contemporary folk do you want some synthie rock with a really crazy music video? What kind of rock? Sort of synthie. Synthie like. rock, uh huh. Or <laughs> do you want some just really classic 80s Kiwi pop with really on the nose lyrics? I like that one.
0: Yeah, you like yeah, that, that good one? Good okay. Idea, yeah. okay, okay, we'll have that. <laughs> Thank you. This is exciting.
1: Well, that was some fun New Zealand pop with Chai (laughs) Ching, who has left us for a minute. You know, I don't hear a lot of New Zealand pop, so that was different. It's a bit of a different musical interlude for our podcast episode, but maybe it should be a new segment. Perhaps. We're joined (laughs) now. carried away. (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. But we're joined now by two other great guests. We've got Vanessa Williamson here, who's a fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Kimberly Clausing, who's an economist at Reed College. And Kim and Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to ask you first, both of you think about the tax system from somewhat different perspectives. So we were wondering if you could first just tell us a little bit about the vantage point from which you see the tax debate. Vanessa, why don't you start?
3: Sure. So thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a political scientist by training, and my work looks at public opinion about government and attitudes about taxation. So I'm really looking at how people understand the tax code. So I'm sort of tax policy adjacent in that way. Mm -hmm. And more broadly, looking at what Americans are willing to pay for, what they think is a good use of government funds, and what context they're willing to chip in their share of the tax money. Thanks. And Kimberly?
4: Yes, thank you as well for having me on the podcast. When I think about the tax system, I come at it from an economist's perspective. So from that viewpoint, three big criteria seem to matter for a good tax system. One, is it raising the revenue we need for what our government has promised citizens? Two, is it paying attention to equity? And in particular, is the tax system progressive so that it asks more from those that are better off? And I think that criteria is more important these days due to rising income inequality. And finally, is the system efficient? And by efficiency, I mean is the tax system avoiding unduly affecting people's decisions? So tax systems can be designed to minimize gimmicks and shenanigans and other things that people do to avoid paying tax. So those are the criteria that I think about.
0: Well, that is a great segue to a discussion about the current tax debate. In the first part of the show, we were talking with Chai Ching, and she'll be back later, about issues of revenue, about issues of equity. So the first two criteria you raised, Kimberly. But this issue of efficiency, complexity, especially in the international tax system, which I know you've looked at, the current debate seems to be suggesting that our corporations, our multinational corporations, they face too burdensome a tax system. They're paying too much much. What's your take on that part of the argument?
4: One of the really interesting things about this argument is it sort of gets it backwards. Our corporate tax system really does need reform, but the fact is there's a big difference between how we're labeling our tax system and the reality on the ground. If you think about our domestic firms, those are the ones that are paying the higher tax burden because they have fewer opportunities to move income to tax havens. They're purely domestic. Their tax rate is closer to what we say it is, which is 35%. But if you take the second group of corporations, the much bigger ones that earn most of the profit, many of these are multinational and they're more nimble. And due to their agility, they're able to shift a lot of their profits to tax havens. And because of this ability, they often end up paying tax rates that are much, much lower than our advertised 35%. So the kind of companies you should be thinking of here are General Electric, Apple, Google, Pfizer, the big pharma companies. These big multinationals have very low tax rates that can often reach single digits. And there's really no sign that they're not competitive. If you look at them, they have higher after-tax profits and they have had any time in history. If you look at corporate profits for the country as a share of GDP, they're about 50% higher this century than they were in the 1980s or 90s. And if you look at lists of global multinational firms, our U.S. companies dominate those lists. We have a much higher share of the world's big companies than we have of
0: the world's economy. So are the corporations complaining about the tax code just flat out Wrong and greedy, or is there a germ of something in what they're whining about? I mean, talking about.
4: There are certainly distortions and problems with the present system. So one of the things that the corporations are really eager to do is repatriate income that they've earned abroad and get it back to their shareholders without paying what they refer to as a repatriation tax. So basically what we do in our tax system is we let companies that have moved income offshore not pay any U.S. tax until it's brought home. And this concept is called deferral. And because of that, companies are very reluctant to bring the money back because they fear this tax that might be due upon repatriation. And so that creates a distortion. Now, one way around that inefficiency is to simply tax income when it's earned and not allow allow the deferral. It's the act of saying that you don't have to pay the tax until you bring it back Mm -hmm. that's causing this reluctance. So you could imagine a system, for instance, where you lowered the rate, but you actually taxed the income, even when it was earned in havens, right away. And then you wouldn't have this distortion, which right now is driving them a little crazy because they want to get their hands on the cash, but they can't do it without paying the repatriation tax.
1: So that makes a ton of sense to me that you'd want to get rid of that loophole, and I think most people would agree with that. Vanessa, I wanted to ask you, too, because Kimberly said you could conceivably do that and lower the rates, and I think a lot of times when... People in D.C. talk about their conception of tax reform. It's this concept of we're going to close some of these loopholes and we're going to lower the rates. And some of your writing seems to get it. Maybe there's a problem with that framing in the D.C. tax debate, even though the loophole closures are completely a useful thing to do. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that.
3: Certainly. First of all, it's worth knowing that when you ask Americans what bothers them most about the tax system, the top two answers in one order or another are that corporations or wealthy people aren't paying their share. So this is an issue that people actually do feel quite strongly about, and people do support quite high tax rates on corporations. But the problem, of course, is that the details of the tax code are really very complicated. It's quite reasonable for most people not to really understand all of these subtleties. People have talked so much about loopholes, which on the corporate side are obviously really significant, that people don't believe that the rates even matter. They imagine that anyone who's wealthy enough can come up with a way of avoiding the taxes that they're supposed to pay. And so what that means is that people don't think of progressive rates as that important, not because they don't support progressivity, they do. They would like wealthy people and corporations to pay a lot more, but because they think that the system is so corrupted that those rates don't even matter. So it's a difficult conversation to have.
1: I'm curious what you see as a way to translate that public opinion into political feasibility.
4: Yeah, so I can take a stab at that. If you look at the House plan, for instance, the average tax cut the Republicans were giving the top 1% was about $200,000, and the average tax cut they were giving the bottom 80% was $200, right? So if you look... At what's happened over the last 35 years, it seems like an odd time to be giving the top 1% a thousand times the tax cut of the bottom 80%. And one way you could more pragmatically implement this is to give every American the same size tax cut in dollar terms, because $800 would mean a lot more to people at the bottom than it would to those at the top. So if you did something more like that, that would get more public support than just lopping 10 or 20 percentage points off corporate rates or the rates for those at the very top of the income
0: distribution. What's some billionaire going to do with 800 bucks? <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Vanessa, did you, want to, um, did you want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I
3: think it's really important to remember that there is a huge, huge distance between what public opinion holds and what public policy actually gets done. Particularly in Washington these days, that is exceptionally true. So one thing to bear in mind as we're thinking about tax policy in the future is to look at what the states have been doing, and I think that's been a really interesting story. One thing that I've been following is the frequency with which states are managing to raise taxes often by ballot measure, that is to say they're putting a plan to raise taxes before the voters and are successfully getting those measures passed. In the early 80s, you'd see about one in five of those measures passed. Now, more than half the time, if you put a measure before the voters that says, hey, we're going to raise state taxes to pay for X, Y, or Z, people vote in favor.
1: I was in California before coming to work in D.C., and one of the things I worked on when I was with my teacher's union was passing Proposition 30, which was a high-end tax hike on rich people in California. Are there other states that you're also thinking about recently that have done things of the nature that you just mentioned?
3: Yeah, actually it's a trend all across the country. It's not even just on the coast. The only place in the country where you really don't see success across the board with this is in the South. And that's not because they don't pass, it's because they're almost never on the ballot. When you put a tax increase on the ballot these days, you have a better than 50-50 shot of that turning into law.
0: I find that to be a mind blower. Kimberly, does that blow your mind the way it blows mine?
4: Well, I think it is surprising when you compare it to what happens at the federal level, because it seems so much more easy for Congress to pass tax cuts and to pass tax increases. In the last election, even the Democratic candidate is talking about just raising taxes on tiny groups of people, not on society as a whole. So this idea that it could be popular to raise taxes is one that isn't being translated into public policy, which might say something about our political system itself.
0: Well, I mean, our political system is highly financed by people. People who want tax cuts not tax increases where I'm coming from these days is that when I look at the present and the future we're going to need more revenues to fund the federal government rather than less so to me a tax cut makes no sense and interestingly we're having this discussion during a set of natural disasters that just remind you that there is a role for government that the private sector won't play. Kimberly what do you think when you think about what actual tax reform would look like as opposed to the tax cuts we hear everybody talking about right now
4: one thing reform really does have to deal with is our revenue needs as you point out we have some big spending needs from our prior commitments to old people to national defense to payments on our prior debts if you look just at demography over the next 10 years our spending needs will rise by 2% of GDP just because of Social Security and Medicare so Mm -hmm. I think reform has to address these revenue needs It has to address the big increase in income inequality, which has meant that a big chunk of the population really hasn't benefited from the economic growth of the last 35 years. And it has to address these new needs, things like infrastructure and climate change, which has generated both spending needs with respect to natural disasters, but also a possible revenue source. So one thing I think people should start thinking about when they're thinking about corporate tax reform is moving to a carbon tax, because that would be a great way to come up with a new revenue source that wouldn't require raising taxes in other parts of the tax system, but that would respond to these immense climate changes we have in a way that would be highly efficient and you could get all this revenue and you could give it back to americans evenly so it wouldn't necessarily need to be something that would fall more heavily on the poor there was actually a group of four republican economists which suggested a carbon tax which would then be rebated to americans in equal terms and because rich people fly more and they have bigger houses and they drive bigger cars they're going to pay a larger share of the carbon tax. So when the rebates get handed out evenly, it'll actually be a tax cut for those in the bottom half of the distribution.
0: Vanessa, two follow-ups for you there. One, carbon tax. What do the politics of that look like to you vis-a-vis, public opinion? And two, let's say you're the tax czarina. What ideas might you bring to the table?
3: I absolutely agree that the question of climate change is probably the foremost question that we have to deal with in terms of what government does or does not do for its people. And I'm mostly pro-tax, so carbon tax sounds good to me, too. But the challenge, politically, of the carbon tax is that it's unfamiliar to people. It's very easy to tell people things that aren't true about a tax they've no personal experience with, because personal experience is the thing that protects people against the nonsense politicians sell them. So that's the challenge. The one sort of similar tax, at least in principle, is the gas tax. People have very deep concerns about the gas tax, partly because it's not visible to them. People don't usually actually know what part of the price of gasoline is the tax that they're paying, and they don't really understand how it varies by state. So uh, people are quite angry about tax because they don't have very accurate information about how that tax works. And so I think that's a pitfall that many kinds of tax can fall into and something that you have to be really careful with explaining a carbon tax to people who hadn't experienced one before. That's really a large explanatory challenge, but that doesn't mean it isn't one that needs to be faced. More broadly, I think that if we're talking about a carbon tax, which is, I totally agree with Kimberly, a great way to raise revenue, I think we need to talk about the massive government interventions that will be needed to make the country safe for people who will be facing enormous climate challenges, and we can't do that with rebates. You can give people 300 bucks or 800 bucks, but it's not going to protect them when the next storm comes. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be honest about how much of the money you can really return if we're actually going to keep the people of Houston, the people of the Gulf Coast, the people of Florida safe the way they need to be kept safe in the new climate change future.
0: Kimberly, I didn't mean to cut you off before. I had a feeling you were riffing on some other preferences in a world where you get to call the shots on taxes.
4: What a great world that would be. I really hope that happens. Hey, I happen to to agree with that. (laughs) We do need to raise more revenue. And so I guess the question is, how do we balance that need to raise The revenue is who pays it and toward what end. So when I think about the carbon tax as a crucial part of raising more revenue, that's a nice tax because it taxes something we genuinely dislike, climate change, as opposed to taxing something that we like, like work or saving. And the reason to pair it with rebating it, potentially, is to address this concern that it could be regressive. So I think another key ingredient to any tax reform is to make the system more progressive, not less progressive. Because as I've pointed out, over the last 35 years, most of this GDP that we've manage to generate has gone to just very few hands. A so typical household isn't that much better off than they were 35 years ago. The tax system can play an important role in saying, okay, well, there's some people who've really won over the last 35 years, and they should probably pay more tax, and that includes those corporations with their big profits. But there's some people who've lost, and we need to make their tax burdens lighter. So if you could pair an urge for progressivity with an urge to save the planet and finally an urge to just make the system less complicated and less riddled with gimmicks and shenanigans, then I think that you could design something that would be far superior to what we have now. That wouldn't necessarily have that much higher rates because you'd be doing away with the gimmicks and shenanigans, but it would involve lower burdens for those at the bottom, a cleaner planet, and less wasteful avoidance.
0: Damn, that sounds really, really good.
4: I actually have a book that I'm writing, and that's chapter 10 of the book. Chapter 10? I could send you the full fleshed out version.
0: Yeah, Yeah. That sounds exactly the direction that Ben and I want to go. So you've got a couple of fans right here. Vanessa, how does that sound to you, given your sense of how people think about the code? I suspect it's pretty resonant.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I genuinely agree wholeheartedly, particularly on the points of the need to make the tax system more progressive by raising rates at the top, and the shenanigans that also, I
0: think, is a key <laughs> no shenanigans. Of tax reform.
3: <laughs> um, Ending the shenanigans. Then, um, yeah.
0: Hey, i got to tell you, I feel more uplifted than I typically do after a tax conversation, so thanks to the both of you for that. Yeah, thank you so much.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, that was great talking to Kimberly and Vanessa, and we're fortunate to have Chai Ching-Huang back with us. Thanks for rejoining us, and thanks for that great tip on Kiwi pop music. That's the best Kiwi pop song I've ever heard. No, that's not true, because I've listened to some Lord. so that's maybe the second best Kiwi pop song I've ever heard. Look, Vanessa and Kimberly gave us some of their thoughts about what real tax reform would look like, and I suspect you, Chai Ching, have thoughts about components of a tax reform plan that you would say, wow, that really makes sense, versus, ooh, that's terrible.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I completely agree with them that we should be raising more revenues in a progressive way to put towards things that are sound priorities. One of the things to note is that the Republican plans at the moment are shifting around trillions of dollars, and they say that their goal is to raise working class and middle class incomes, but don't do that, as we talked about before. One of the ideas that's come up recently that really clearly shows how far away they are from that is a proposal that would cost roughly half the amount of Trump's tax cuts that go to millionaires alone, but would do far, far more than that plan to raise the incomes of people who are low and in moderate income working families. So Senator Brown and Representative Carna, for example, introduced a bill that would significantly raise the incomes of about 47 million families and individuals at just half the cost of the Trump tax cuts and would do so by boosting the earned income tax credit. There are lots of provisions that help low and moderate income people or affect them in the code. But if you really want to raise their incomes, because a lot of them have incomes that are too low to owe a lot of federal income tax, what you really need to do is focus on refundable tax credits.
0: Refundable meaning...
2: Meaning that if it exceeds the amount of federal income taxes that they owe because they simply have incomes too low to owe much federal income tax, even though they owe payroll taxes, state and local taxes, excise taxes, refundable tax credits allow you to receive the remainder as a refund these proposals would, instead of relying on the trickle-down from Mm. corporate tax cuts or the other things that we know don't work, would just directly increase the incomes of these families.
0: So the earned income credit you mentioned is obviously key in this space, and that's a wage subsidy for workers in low-income families. And as you suggested, some of these folks may have no federal tax liability at all, but they end up getting a check from the IRS to supplement their earnings. And in this sense, this has been found to be pro-work, anti-poverty, and a great way to lift incomes for moderate and poor families. But how high up the income scale does that go? Does it really reach the middle class?
2: The proposal that Senator Brown and Representative Connor have put out would actually increase the reach of the EITC further up the income scale, so it would moderately increase where it phases out, so it would reach into the fifty dollars to $75,000 range as well.
0: So we now have a nice collection of good ideas for tax reform, and yet we're in the midst of a very perverse tax debate from the perspective of everything we've been talking about. Why Chai Ching? I know this is a really big question, but why are we having such a lousy debate about such bad ideas instead of a better debate about what we all agree are better ideas.
2: There's a disconnect, and I think this is something that you've discussed with Kimberly and Vanessa, particularly Vanessa's work has shown that there is actually quite a lot of popular understanding that trickle-down economics doesn't work. If you look at what people say in response to questions about whether corporate tax cuts create jobs or is their top tax priority, you generally don't get the answer that president Trump's asking us all to believe so i think one of the questions around that is really why is there such a disconnect between what citizens understand and what politicians
0: could it be as simple as politicians are simply doing the bidding that their wealthy donors Pay them to do.
2: That is a hypothesis that deserves some attention. I would say I wouldn't want to malign anybody's motivations, right but not. one has to wonder. <laughs> 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 one has to wonder sometimes when you think about sort of where all the tax cuts are going. It does seem to be tilted towards.
0: Yeah, I mean, the in this, class. I, I hear where you're coming from. I must say, though, in this debate, I have no problem maligning the
1: motivations of people who are saying things that I know they know are false. One mm-hmm. of the things that I think about going back to the proposal you mentioned on the EITC is how much less it actually costs than what Republicans are trying to do. And so when they say that they are interested in delivering benefits to low and middle income families, there would be a way to do that at a much cheaper cost. But anyway, that's enough taxes. Chai Ching, I understand that no, you- No, no, have, no.
2: It's never enough taxes. Uh, that's so, a yeah, good, yeah. Fair <laughs>
1: point. I understand that you have a joke for us. Well, we're just outsourcing everything for you. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much.
2: I had to go hunting for this because the only ones I knew previously were New Zealand jokes about Australians, Australian jokes about New Zealanders, <laughs> jokes about lawyers, jokes about accountants. They were all mean. We're ben
0: tells very mean jokes about economists, I should say. <laughs> get that on and mine record. last week was kind of mean.
2: But I understand you used to be a math teacher and I found this one that involves sheep, which is something that New Zealanders <laughs> have a lot of back home, and also math. So a talking sheepdog gets all the sheep into the pen for his farmer. He comes back and says, Okay, boss, all fifty sheep are counted for. The farmer says, But I've counted them and there are only forty six. The sheepdog replies, I know, but I rounded them up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Rone. All right, I well love it. for this week that's on the economy. <laughs>